ladies and gentlemen, welcome and thank you for coming. As president of the Council for British Research in the Levant, or the CBRL as it's usually known, I'd like to welcome you one and all this evening to the CBRL-sponsored lecture series on language and identity in the Near East, ancient and modern. A special thanks go to Wolfson College for hosting and to the Khalili Research Centre and its director, Professor Jeremy Johns, for co-sponsoring tonight's lecture, which is the first in a five lecture series to be held over the next 12 months at various university venues. Tonight's lecture is entitled Nomad Soldiers, Musicians and Hairdressers. Some thoughts on language and identity in the Roman provinces of Syria and Arabia and will be given by Michael MacDonald, a fellow of Wolfson College, a research associate at the Oriental Institute here in Oxford and a fellow of the British Academy. The area of the Levant and Northwest Arabia has probably always enjoyed a cacophony of languages. Its strategic position between Egypt, the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia has made it a popular target for conquerors, many of whom have left their linguistic mark. It was also a region crossed by numerous trade routes, which often started in very distant areas, bringing goods from Africa, India and beyond, uh, as well as frankincense from South Arabia and Somalia, which was literally worth more than its weight in gold. It was therefore a very cosmopolitan place, and probably numerous languages were spoken with varying degrees of competence. I say probably because our knowledge of them is inevitably restricted to those written texts which have survived. But these give us evidence not only of the languages in which they were written, but also glimpses of other languages spoken by their authors. Thank goodness for Franglais uh, and its ancestors. Our picture of the linguistic geography of the region is thus like a kaleidoscope, lots of fragments of illuminated glass producing a complex pattern rather than a clear picture. Tonight, I'll examine some of these shards in the hope of clarifying the picture, if only a little. When Pompey the Great conquered Syria for Rome in 63 BC, he found a region where Greek had been the language of government since Alexander's conquest in 333 BC. It was in general use as a written language and was probably also wi widely spoken in the towns and cities. It was the official language for public monuments and for the vast majority of private gravestones and even for such graffiti as survived in the settled areas. However, Syria was also the home to several other languages. Our earliest records of Aramaic come from there at the beginning of the first millennium BC and under the Achaemenid Empire, which ruled the Middle East and Egypt between 538 and 330 BC, a particular dialect of Aramaic was chosen as the official written language of the empire. With the coming of Alexander and his successors, who ruled from 330 to 63 BC, there was no longer a tight universal control on the type of Aramaic language and script which served as a model, and those who used it started gradually uh, to write their own Aramaic dialects and develop different descendants of the Achaemenid official Aramaic script. Of these multiple dialects and scripts developing under the Seleucids, the Parthians, Parthians and the Romans, only Nabataean, which developed in Petra in the second century BC, Palmyrene in the first century BC, Hatron in the Jazeera 
at the turn of the era and Syriac at Edessa in the first century AD were regularized as chancery scripts. Elsewhere, for instance in the Hauran, local versions of the Achaemenid official Aramaic script developed independently, apparently with no overall control. Thus we find many individual versions of the script in places as far removed as, as southern Syria, Tema in northwest Arabia and the Persian Gulf. But there were also speakers of a number of Arabic dialects in both the Roman province of Syria and in Nabatea to the south. It's now pretty well established that many of the uh, many Nabataeans, at least in southern Jordan and northwest Arabia, spoke Arabic. But because in settled areas it was considered to be a purely spoken language, they wrote in Aramaic. We know this because in Nabataean Aramaic there are not only a good number of loanwords from Arabic, but more importantly, a number of morphological and syntactic loans which demonstrate a much closer relationship between the users of two languages. In addition, there is a fascinating inscription in the Negev uh, near the important Nabataean town of, of Abudat, modern Avdat, which gives the author's name and other details in Nabataean Aramaic, but then quotes two lines of rhetorical Arabic carved in the Aramaic script. These lines seem to be part of a hymn of praise to Abodas, the deified king of Nabatea, after whom the town was named. This chimes with the Eusebius report in the 4th century AD that the people of Petra and Elusa, another Nabataean town in the Negev, pray, quote, praise the Virgin with hymns in the Arabic language. The Nabataeans were one of a large number of disparate peoples who were known as Arabs by their neighbours and by outsiders such as the Assyrians, Greeks and Romans. These Nabataeans had very diverse ways of life and lived all around the Fertile Crescent from eastern Egypt to northern Syria to southern Mesopotamia and in the Syrian desert. Indeed, after Pompey had conquered Syria, Cicero, in a letter, disparagingly called him an Arab Ark, ruler of Arabs. Um, you could almost, almost feel the, the tone of disdain uh, with which Cicero said this. Um, uh, I have argued that the only common feature that could have made all these peoples with different ways of life in different places recognisable as Arabs would have been a relatively ill-defined complex of language and culture such as we use today when we talk of societies from Morocco to Iraq as Arab. The Nabataeans were consistently called Arabs by their contemporaries and indeed are said to have been Arab nomads who settled at Petra at the end of the 4th century BC. If it was this complex of language and culture which defined them as Arabs, one could suggest that traditional features of their culture, such as religious liturgies, might have continued to be in Arabic and were therefore unwritten. We also have, we have a different form of evidence for the use of Arabic by the Nabataeans in the legal documents written in Nabataean Aramaic. From the so-called Babatha archive, written in a village south of the Dead Sea in the first and early second centuries AD between the two Jewish revolts against the Romans, here Nabataean Aramaic technical legal terms are followed by the equivalent terms in Arabic, written in the Aramaic script. This shows that the Nabataeans had a legal, an Arabic legal vocabulary 
and I've suggested that the oral proceedings in Nabataean courts were conducted in Arabic, but recorded in Aramaic. Just as in medieval England, court proceedings were conducted in English or Norman French, but recorded in Latin. These two examples suggest that in Nabatea, an Arabic spoken dialect was alive and well, but was considered to be an unwritten language, just as when I first learnt Arabic 50 years ago, most Arabs considered it impossible to write down their spoken dialect and said that if one wanted to write, one had to learn the written dialect or fusha. It's one of the ironies of history that while settled Arab speakers, Arabic speakers in Nabatea and southern Syria, had to learn a different language, uh, Aramaic, before they could write. Their nomad, nomadic neighbours had scripts, known as Safiitic and Hismaic, in which they wrote the Arabic dialects they spoke, and carved literally tens of thousands of graffiti in it on the desert rocks. Some settled people clearly knew the, of these scripts, because we find their Greek, Nabataean and Palmarine graffiti in the deserts besides those, beside those of the nomads. Indeed, we even find a few Safiitic inscriptions out in the desert by people who say they are inhabitants of Salhad, a town on Jebel al-Arab, and Palmara, where there are indeed a handful of Safiitic inscriptions. Were these settled Arabic speakers experimenting with writing their spoken language in the scripts of the nomads? We also have four Safiitic graffiti by people who identify themselves as Nabataeans. But perhaps most settled people considered it rather infradic to adopt scripts used by nomads to write their spoken language and preferred to display their education by writing in the more prestigious Aramaic, which had been, and maybe still was, the lingua franca of the Near East. We shall come across another example of snobbery in writing later on. Many of you will know about the Safietic and Hismaic scripts and graffiti, so I will give only a very brief description of them for those to whom they're unfamiliar. When the alphabet was first invented uh, in the second millennium BC, it quickly split into two traditions, all but one of the modern uh, traditional alphabets, including the Arabic and Roman scripts, are descended from one of these traditions, the Phoenicio-Aramaic uh, family. The other tradition, the South Semitic script family, was used exclusively in ancient Arabia, Jordan and southern Syria, and has only one descendant, the vocalised alphabet used by several languages in Ethiopia. We do not know how the nomads of Arabia, Jordan and southern Syria became literate in scripts from this second family of alphabets, but it's possible that on visits to oases, one or more of them at different times, saw someone's writing, and curiosity being a survival skill for nomads, said, teach me to do that. Since at the time the nomad was used to remembering things rather than writing them down as we do, he would have had an excellent memory and learnt the letters very quickly. When he went back to his family, he would have shown off his new skill, writing in the dust or carving on a rock. This probably happened multiple times, which is why we have many different forms of the same alphabet among different groups of nomads. Moreover, a strong indication that literacy was passed on informally and not in schools is that whenever the alphabet is written out, presumably to teach someone, someone else, the letters are in different orders 
and never in either of the two traditional orders shown at the bottom of the slide. Each carver grouped the letters he or she thought had vaguely similar shapes. Straight lines, curved lines, circles, they're, they're boxed on the side, as you can see. However, since the nomads couldn't afford papyrus uh, and didn't carry pottery, and so had no bits of broken pot, the ancient equivalent of scrap paper, to write on, they could not use literacy, as we do, for communication and record. And so they did not become dependent on it. Instead, they remained a, uh, an entirely oral society, that is, one which relied entirely on memory and verbal communication. But in this case, an oral society in which large numbers of people could read and write. The reason that these skills were passed down through the generations and were incredibly widespread is that they gave those, these nomads a way of passing the time while performing everyday solitary tasks like watching uh, over the animals while they pastured. This could be incredibly boring, but literacy enabled them to carve graffiti on the desert rocks, which, were, which was an ideal way of passing the time. After the Roman annexation of the Nabataean Kingdom in AD 106, Greek became the official language of the province of Arabia and became deeply embedded in Jordan and in southern Syria, where it already had a long history. However, since the Romans were less interested in the parts of the province in northwest Arabia, Greek made fewer inroads here, and Nabataean Aramaic continued as the major written language, with Arabic almost certainly the most widely spoken one. Greek, uh, sorry, gradually, during the 3rd, 4th and 5th centuries AD, fewer and fewer people in, the north, in northwest Arabia were willing to learn the Aramaic uh, language. And scribes and ordinary literate people started to write their spoken language, Arabic, in the Nabataean Aramaic script. They kept a few fossil Aramaic words, such as bar for son, dakir, may he be remembered, shalam, may he be safe and sound, dating formula, etc., just as we use fossilised Latin expressions such as infradig, etc., ibid, and abbreviations of Latin phrases such as ie, eg, rip, etc. This use of the Aramaic script to write Arabic continued throughout the 5th and 6th centuries, and with the exception of bar, son of, which continued into the 7th century, the Aramaic fossils gradually dropped out and the alphabet was used to write only Arabic. Thus, what we think of as the Arabic script is in fact simply a late development of the Nabataean Aramaic script, which is therefore still in use. However, this pro process was not without problems. For one thing, Aramaic has only 22 consonants as against Arabic's 28. In addition, during its evolution, the shapes of several letters in the Nabataean form of the Aramaic script had become identical to others so that, in fact, there were only 15 different letter shapes left to express the 28 different Arabic consonants. It's for this reason that when this script came to be widely used to write Arabic, dots were employed to distinguish between different letters represented by the same shape. Nevertheless, a snobbery persisted among highly educated readers that one should be able to work out what was written without the dots. A 9th century Arab governor of Khorasan in Central Asia, on receiving a piece of superb Arabic calligraphy, is said to have remarked, 
How beautiful this would be if there were not so much coriander seeds scattered over it. <laughs> and this view uh, was uh, still being expressed by Arab writers in the 17th century. It's interesting to compare the earliest Arabic everyday documents on papyri, in which dots are used, with early Quranic manuscripts, inscriptions, and even graffiti, especially in what is mistakenly called the Kufic form of the script, where there are no dots. Coriander seed is useful if you want to be understood in a letter, but can be discarded if you're copying or quoting the Quran, with which most readers would be familiar and need only a hint to stir their memories. But to return to language and identity, and I'm sorry, I've strayed. Uh, since we have arrived in Arabia, it's worth looking at the languages and scripts used in, northwest, in the northwest of the peninsula. The three major oases in this area, Duma, Tema, and Dadan, uh, each had its own script, uh, its own language, and its own version of the South Semitic script family. The Dadan, modern Alula, is the only one in which its language and script, Dadanitic, seems to have been widely used for monumental inscriptions. From Duma and Tema, we have so far only graffiti in the local scripts. However, a curious linguistic watershed occurred in the mid-6th century BC, when Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, conquered northwest Arabia and settled in Tema for 10 years of his 17-year reign. He brought with him the Babylonian imperial bureaucracy, which used Aramaic rather than Akkadian as the image uh, I speak with uh, under correction from uh, Jacob Dahl. Um, that, uh, I think that's true. Um, uh, rather than Akkadian as the language in which it ruled the vast Babylonian empire. This was because Aramaic was already the lingua franca of the Middle East and so could be understood very widely. Indeed, we have a graffito near Tema in, uh, in Aramaic by one of his officials. Interestingly, his name, uh, Shim'an, suggests that he was Jewish. And it is Shim'an, uh, not Shim'un, because uh, the wow would have been shown in the Aramaic, um, uh, but the al alif, the R, the long A, -A never is shown in internally. So we know that it's Shim'an, not Shim'un. Um, however, however, we also have three other graffiti by Babylonian officials accompanying the king, but these are in the local language and script, Temanitic. Although the language and script of these graffiti are fluent Temanitic, the content is quite different from indigenous Temanitic graffiti and makes it clear that either these were people of Temanite origin who had been living in Babylon and were brought to Tema to help govern, govern the newly acquired territory, or they dictated what they wanted to say via an interpreter to a local who carved the graffiti for them. Either way, it is very curious to have royal officials of a mighty empire leaving graffiti, and the, they really are graffiti, not official propaganda inscriptions, in the local language and script. Even more odd, Word dividers were used in several South Semitic alphabets, including Temanitic, but were not used in Aramaic. Yet above this Temanitic graffito uh, by a Babylonian official, we find an Aramaic graffito in another Babylonian, by another Babylonian, to judge by his name, in which he has adopted the local practice of using a word divider. 
So it looks as though the scribal practices of a conquered oasis have affected the orthography of the international script used by the conquering empire. But things become even more curious. Since Tema was an important trading station, many of its merchants may well have known some Aramaic before Nabonidus' arrival. But his ten-year sojourn there, with all his officials, no doubt increased its currency. The use of Aramaic as the official language of the empire continued under the Persian Achaemenid Empire, which succeeded Nabonidus and lasted until the late 4th century BC. Thus, we find official inscriptions in Tema carved in what is known as Achaemenid official Aramaic. Gradually, this seems to have displaced the local language and script, at least for inscriptions and tombstones, though unfortunately we cannot know whether it did so in speech as well. Sometime after Nabonidus' departure, a, scribe, a tribe called Lichyan, which ruled the rival oasis of Dadan, conquered Tema and installed its governors there. Now, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, turn the page, um, Dadan had its own language and script, Dadanitic, and just under 2,000 monumental texts and graffiti in Dadanitic have been found in and around the Dadan oasis. On the other hand, Aramaic inscriptions are extremely rare in Dadan, at least, uh, at least before it was conquered by the Nabataeans at the end of the first century BC. Dadanitic was clearly the language of both the government and the people. In Tema, however, all the inscriptions set up under Lichenite rule are in Aramaic, and not a single one found so far is in Dadanitic. Even more curious, on the rock faces around Tema, we now have four graffiti by two different kings of Lichyan, and all of them are in the local Aramaic script of Tema, and none in Dadanitic. Perhaps, like the Babylonian officials, these Lichyanite rulers of Dadan wanted to be understood by the local population, which had now switched from Temanitic to Aramaic as its written language. But, like the Babylonians, these were conquerors, not immigrants, and one might assume that, like the Greeks and Romans, they would have expected the conquered to learn their language. Instead, uh, the conquered to learn their language. Sorry. Instead, however, they seem to have written to be understood by the locals, even in their graffiti. Thus, they express their identity clearly in the content of the graffiti, rather than by the language and script they use. And we shall see other examples of this later. If we now go back to the nomads in Syria and Jordan, whom I mentioned earlier, you will remember that, that they spoke a dialect of Arabic. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, <coughs> they spoke dialects of Arabic, which were different not only from each other, but also from that spoken by the Nabataeans. You may also remember that, unlike Nab the Nabataeans, they wrote down their Arabic dialects in alphabets of the South Semitic script family. As far as we can tell, two dialects and scripts were used by these nomads, Safietic in southern Syria and northeastern Jordan, and Hismaic in the Hisma deserts of southern Jordan and northwest Saudi Arabia. Of course, a handful of each type have been found beyond these areas. They were nomads, after all. Uh, a few Hismaic texts have been found in northern Jordan, and some Safietic graffiti have been found in western Iraq in and around Palmyra, in Saudi Arabia, 
and as far away as Pompeii. As far as we can tell, these literate nomads roamed the deserts in the last century BC and the first four centuries AD, i.e. in the late Hellenistic and the Roman periods. Because they had all the time in the world when they were keeping watch while the camels, goats and sheep were pasturing, they often carved quite long graffiti, giving their names and genealogies and saying what they were doing, what had been happening recently, both in their society and in the wider world, for they seemed to have been very well informed about events in Roman Syria, the Jewish kingdom, Nabatea, and later Roman Arabia. The graffito on the screen is dated to the year Caesar's son died, which probably refers to the emperor Tiberius' adopted son Germanicus, who came to Syria in AD 18 and made a great impression throughout the province. He is mentioned by name in another Sapietic text. However, he died very suddenly, probably of poison, outside Antioch in the same year. His death was headline news, and he was widely, widely mourned. If the Philippus, at the, whose death was also reported, was Philip the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled the Hauran, Ledger, Golan, and much else in southern Syria between the R Roman province and the Nabataean kingdom, then Zaid was right to scoff, since Philip the Tetrarch lived for another 15 years and only died in AD 33. But these nomads also wrote about their hopes and fears, often in very expressive ways. The result is that we know far more about the social structures, daily life, significant events, belief systems, and individual emotions of these nomads than we do of any of their contemporaries in the cities or the countryside, where we have no equivalent texts. When a nomad writes, I've lost friend after friend after friend, and I'm all alone and hungry and cold, it strikes one immediately. It's like receiving a text, but from 2,000 years ago. They carved tens of thousands of graffiti in the desert rocks, on the desert rocks and were clearly proud of their efforts. Most of the texts end with prayers to a number of different deities, almost always for security, but also for rain, a change of circumstances, booty, a reunion with loved ones, etc. But there is also often a curse on anyone who would damage the inscription and sometimes a blessing on those who would read it and leave it alone. It's interesting that the authors do not seem to have been embarrassed by describing their emotions in such a public forum where they expected others might read the text. Some at least of these nomads appear to have felt that in some way this, this, this script was a mark of their identity. There is, for instance, near Deir al-Kaf, between Umm al-Jamal and al-Safawi in northeastern Jordan, a cave tomb which I explored and published some years ago. Inside the cave, which was carved into the hillside, there is a bar around the, the walls immediately below the ceiling, on which there is an inscription in the form of the Aramaic script used in the Haram. Below, this, below the sarcophagi are carved out of the rock, and on each of these, the name and patronym of the deceased was carved in Sapietic. Thus, Aramaic was used for the public announcement. This is the hypogeum which Halaf made he and his brothers, the sons of Aus, etc., but Safietic was used for the personal identification of each of the brothers on his sarcophagus. A very similar situation occurs in the Nabataean city of Hegra, modern Madayan Saleh, in northwest Arabia. In AD 267, 
that's more than 160 years after the Roman annexation of Nabatea, a man called Ka'abu uh, commissioned a, a memorial inscription on a rock face above the simple grave of his mother. Ka'abu, or the scribe he employed, was clearly an Arabic speaker because although the text is in Nabataean Arama Aramaic script, many of the words and phrases are Arabic. But most relevant for us is that beside the nine-line Nabataean text, there is a single line carved vertically uh, in a script of the North Arabian nomads called Thamudic D, like those at Deir al-Kaf, simply giving his mother's name and patronym. Once again, Aramaic is used for the public, but the deceased's identity is represented by the everyday script she used. In the basalt desert of southern Syria and northeastern Jordan, the flourishing of, literary, of literacy and the epigraphic habit mean that we find inscriptions from different communities in different languages and scripts. Indeed, we even find playful crossovers between them. For the nomads were not the only people in the desert. The Roman army created a number of posts at strategic points in an attempt to control the nomads. Most of these were at places of permanent or semi-permanent water, where nomads would have to camp during the dry season, July to early October, or at times of unexpected drought. Azraq, Borku, Anamara, Jebel Seis, etc. At these, <coughs> one finds a mixture of Safiitic graffiti by nomads and Greek and Latin graffiti by the soldiers. In some of the latter, the soldiers show that they were levied from villages on Jebel al-Arab, immediately to the west of the desert. Interestingly, these soldiers give their identities both by their, the villages they came from and by their tribes. For instance, at the top left, Azu, son of Burt, of the village of Sodala, of the tribe of Kaukab. Interestingly, as you can see, we have Safiitic graffiti by nomadic sections of the same tribe. Others identify themselves in Greek by their military role, dromedarius, decorian, cavalryman, etc. Although in the Eastern Roman provinces Greek was used as a lingua franca within the Roman army, Latin was its official language, so it's not surprising to find a few Latin graffiti near these camps, though they are either the names of legions or Latin personal names. The latter were probably either by Roman officers in charge of the locally recruited troops or locals who had adopted Roman names. A very interesting example of the latter can be seen in the photograph which shows three related inscriptions, one in Greek and two in Safietic. The Greek is by a certain uh, Zaam, son of uh, Kechsaman, followed by five letters which do not seem to make any sense in Greek, but which my colleague Ahmed al-Jalad has ingeniously interpreted as the Safietic word for he serves in a military unit, Yisrat, transcribed into in Greek letters. The upper Safietic graffito is by someone whose name has been damaged, but whose father's name, uh, as in the Greek inscription, was Kechsaman. He dates his text to the year Zanan, son of Kechsaman, was appointed, presumably as leader of the troop. It's interesting that a certain uh, Shah, son of Kechsaman, from the same lineage group, has left two almost identical Greek graffiti, giving his name, his father's and his grandfather's names. Uh, his lineage group and tribe. 
If these authors are all from the same family, it would seem that they were proud of being able to write in Greek, even at a rather basic level. However, the lowest uh, uh, Sapietics text, surrounded with a border, is in some ways the most startling and raises all sorts of questions about language and identity. It says, Gaius of the people of Rome was here from his station at Aqal. Unfortunately, we don't know where Aqal was, uh, but that is the least of our problems. Uh, was this really a Roman citizen writing in perfect Sapietic Arabic? It seems unlikely, as my former pupil Joseph Bloomfield immediately pointed out, a Roman would not normally identify himself simply by his prinomen without his nomen. Compare Latin graffiti in the desert such as Gaianus Maximus or T. Aelius Magnus. It therefore seems more likely that Gaius was a nomad who was serving in the Roman army and had, perhaps humorously, adopted the name Gaius and gives the people of Rome as his lineage group in exactly the same phraseology as a nomad would give his tribe. Thus, on the same stone, we have two, probably three, nomads connected with the Roman army. One who writes in Greek letters but doesn't know the Greek for to serve in the military, and another who writes Arabic in the Sapietic script but calls himself Gaius of the people of Rome. But Gaius was not the only nomad to adopt a Roman name. You can see on the screen two examples of Roman names which have become embedded in particular families of the nomad society. We do not know how far back the lineage group of Titus went, since the nomads used the same word, al, for uh, lineage groups of all sorts. So it could have been the author's extended family or a section of his tribe. We find other Roman and Greek names in genealogies with uh, otherwise Semitic names, in uh, Sapietic, such as Claudius, Georgios, uh, Hyrcanus, uh, Damasi, etc. And this brings us at last to the mu mu musician and the hairdresser, which I'm sure you've all been waiting for. <laughs> uh, a temporary Roman army camp seems to have been pitched in an area called Jathum, which is nowadays right up against the reservoir on the Jordanian side of the border with Syria. The Jordanian army uh, kindly allowed the Badia Epigraphic Survey to visit it in March of this year. An interesting experience. Uh, although nothing remains of the Roman camp, there is a large cairn which covers the burial of a nomad called Abgar. We know this because of the inscriptions on the cairn saying that they were uh, mourning for Abgar. In 1950, the site was surveyed by Professor Fred Winnett and Gerald Langster Harding and among hundreds of Sapphiotic graffiti, they found this lament in Greek by two camp followers. These were clearly urban folk brought out to the desert by the commander of an infantry troop to groom, entertain and make life bearable for him and who were longing to get back to the bright lights of Bosra. Mm -hmm. Unlike the nomads whose graffiti we have looked at, these two townies clearly had a good grasp of Greek sufficient indeed for them rather pretentiously to call their infantry troop, in infantry unit hoplites, the heavily armed foot soldiers of classical Greece. They mark their identity as civilized urban artists by their use of Greek in this wild and desolate place. One last glimpse of the relations between nomads and the Roman army is this at present unique Sapietic inscription 
by a man who identifies himself not in the usual way, simply as being of the tribe of such and such, but as being a horseman in the military unit levied from that tribe. Like one of the texts uh, by soldiers we saw earlier, he dates the inscription by the year someone was appointed commander. This tells us, A, that rather surprisingly, the Romans levied units from single tribes rather than mixing men from a number of different groups, and B, that Akrab uh, identified with this military unit as a close group within his larger tribe. This in turn suggests much closer relationships between some of the nomads and some of the Romans than historians tend to assume. But perhaps the most extraordinary example of shifting identities and linguistic playfulness is this graffiti, found a few years ago in the basalt desert of northeastern Jordan. It was carved by a nomad, as we can see from the content, who knew the Greek alphabet, but little more. Apart from putting os on his name and the genitive ou on those of his father and grandfather, he didn't even know how to express the gentilic or nispa in, in Greek, and so used the Arabic form al-idani. Apart from the endings on the names, the language is entirely Arabic, written in Greek letters. For us, this had the great advantage that it gives us the vowels and diphthongs, which are entirely absent in the Safietic script. So, of course, we wish we could find more of them. It's interesting that the nomads who were accustomed to writing the Arabic language in their own Safietic script without vowels seem to have found no difficulty in expressing vowels when they mis uh, used the Greek uh, alphabet. Moreover, they seem quickly to have learnt which Greek letters to use for those Arabic sounds which did not exist in Greek and which sounds to ignore, like ein or he. Finally, it's very tempting to assume that all those who used a particular script came from the same social group. So in the past, and occasionally still by renegades uh, today, anyone who used the Safietic script has been called a Safayite, Safayite, which is almost unpronounceable and certainly shouldn't be pronounced, uh, by unthinking modern scholars. Similarly, personal names found in texts in the Nabataean Aramaic script have been labelled Nabataean names, and those in a Palmarine text called Palmarine names, etc., and conclusions about language and history drawn from the etymologies of these names. But anyone can learn a language or script. So while someone may treat his or her use of a particular language or script as an identity mark, as in the funerary examples I mentioned earlier, one should not assume that all those who use the same language or script have the same identity. It seems obvious, after all, we have seen nomads writing in Greek and Nabataeans writing in Safietic. But unfortunately, that is exactly the assumption made by people who talk about Safaites or Nabataean names, etc. Each individual who has a choice of language and script chooses whether they want to make an identity statement with their script text or simply to write something in the language and script that comes most easily to them or is most comprehensible to their probable readers. An interesting example of this is an inscription in Palmarine Aramaic by a man who gives his name as Ubaidu, son of Animu, son of Sa'adlat, the Nabataean of the tribe of Ruhu, a horseman in Hirta and in the camp of Anna. 
The inscription is dedicated Shai al-Kam, a god worshipped by the Nabataeans, but not apparently by the Palmarines, and is dated to AD 132, so 26 years after the disappearance of the Nabataean kingdom. Yet this soldier from a kingdom that was no more, working presumably as a refugee mercenary under the patronage of a Palmarine, still identifies himself as a Nabataean, but does so in an inscription in the Aramaic dialect and script of Palmyra, the city that has given him refuge. As we have seen, the Nabataean Aramaic script did not die when the Romans annexed the Nabataean kingdom, but has continued in use up to the present day, present day as what we call the Arabic script. So had a scribe and mason been familiar with the Nabataean script been available, the Baidu could have had the inscription carved in his native written language and script. But, like the Babylonians and the Lychianites in Tamar, he, he presumably wished his inscription to be understood by the literate members of his host population, just as a Syrian refugee in Britain today might write explaining that he is Syrian and thanking his host here, not in Arabic, but in English. Language, script and identity provide us with endless human puzzles. All of us have multiple identities and the one we choose to emphasise or are recognised by at any one time depends on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. <coughs> with the name MacDonald, but an English accent, I identify myself as Scottish when I am in England, but am identified by others as English when I am in Scotland. <laughs> Did all those Arabs in antiquity share the same identity? Of course not. They may, as I have suggested, have been identified by others as Arabs because they spoke different dialects of one language and shared vaguely similar cultural features. But they led very different ways of life in very different regions. And like modern Arabs, would probably not have wanted to be mistaken as belonging to one of the other groups. Indeed, those in the south and east of the peninsula who were mistakenly called Arabs by outsiders would have vigorously denied this identity. Thus, I hope it, it will be clear that it is risky to try to establish some, someone's identity by the language they use, particularly when that language is only known from written evidence, or even worse, the etymology of their name. We find subjects of the Nabataean king in Jordan and northwest Arabia who spoke Arabic but wrote in Aramaic, while his other subjects in southern Syria almost certainly spoke and wrote Aramaic. But some of them could also write Greek, Nomads out in the desert spoke and wrote Arabic in the Safietic and Hismaic scripts, but occasionally tried their hands at Greek or Nabataean Aramaic. Very occasionally, we find language uh, and script used as identity markers, as in the funerary inscriptions I mentioned. But in each case, the explanatory text is in Aramaic, the widely used lingua franca. The writer who identified himself as a horseman in the army unit drawn from his tribe, is claiming, an, claiming a double identity, that of his tribe and of the army unit, even though he is writing in the language of the former, Arabic, rather than of the latter, Greek or Latin. As we all know, identity is a slippery concept and almost impossible to pin down satisfactorily, even our, in our own times, let alone in antiquity, when, as today, the language is spoken or written by an individual depended and depend on particular circumstances, 
and cannot be used as the sole criterion in establishing his or her identity. Then as now, life was more deliciously complicated than that. Thank you. Mm -hmm.